This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Jonathan Engel, Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Mark School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College, City University of New York, or CUNY, his recently published work, Unaffordable, American Healthcare from Johnson to Trump. Professor Engel, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me here today. Professor Engel's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. For this interview, I'll largely dispense with a background statement. I'll only know per Professor Engel's title, Americans are forced to spend over $1 trillion annually, or 6% of the GDP, on no or low-value health care. As Uwe Reinhardt, the recently deceased James Madison Professor of Political Economy at Princeton, stated last summer, quote-unquote, I cannot think of any nation that has given the supply side of its health care sector quite the license to extract money from the rest of the society, as has the United States. Again, with me to discuss unaffordable, quote-unquote, health care is Professor Jonathan Engel. Uh, so, uh, Professor Engel, correct me if I'm wrong, um, much of your book, I think, can be described by your discussion uh, around the two-word phrase, induced demand. Uh, you say uh, early in the book that uh, the U.S. system is, quote-unquote, uniquely dysfunctional and that it is laden relative to this in- induced demand idea, laden with profit-taking and overcapitalized. Would you say that's one of your larger, if not your lead, theme of the work? Um. I'm trying to think if that's the lead theme of the work. It's a big theme of the work. Um, okay. Uh, I, the work shows how the U.S. health system developed over 50 years. Um, it really started when in, I, I've studied health care for, for my entire adult life, really for 30 years now. And I often get uh, questions at, at dinner time or at a party or whatever. And people offer opinions, and I usually just keep to myself. Most of the time, I don't, I don't really volunteer. But right around the time when, when the Affordable Care Act was being legislated, when Obamacare was coming in, and all of a sudden a lot of people who don't think a lot about health care were spending a lot of time thinking about health care. And a number of people said, boy, this system is really crazy. How did we get here? I got that question a lot. How did we wind up with this really cockamamie system where – if you go to an emergency room visit and you get a $5,000 bill or really crazy stuff like this. And, I, and they said, is there a good book I could read? And I said, you know, there actually is no one book. There's a lot of very good scholarly articles out there which take on a little piece of this. But to sort of understand over these last 50 years how we got here, what different people were trying to do and what different interest groups were trying to do and how different uh, players were, were influencing the system. There was no one good book. So I said, let me try to write a book for non-scholars to try to explain what happened over the last 50 years. And I started in 1968 because um, a lot of people know that one of the major components of our health system is Medicare. 
almost everyone's heard about Medicare. Either they're on Medicare or their parents are on Medicare, or they know that somebody. And uh, they, Medicare came in in 1966, but we started seeing a lot of effects very quickly after. So 1968 seemed like a good time to try to start the story. Okay, thank you. So let's let's get into uh, more detail here relative to your, you went back to passage of the Medicare uh, legislation. I should note that today we spend uh, north of $680 billion annually on the uh, Medicare program. Um, your first chapter, uh, uh, U.S. system uh, uniquely uh, dysfunctional. So uh, soon after uh, 68 and 73, uh, you discussed the HMO Act, of 1973. This was um, under Richard Nixon. Most people, in retrospect, uh, do not think favorably about that period through the 90s, health maintenance organizations. Um, But you argue or suggest that the concept of managing spending growth through HMOs and the HMO Act uh, was not as we remember it. In fact, you note later in the volume um, that um, uh, there were some uh, quantitative uh, benefits or gains in managing spending growth under under the HMO Act. Um, sure. So let, let me let me take it from there, David. Sure. Sure. Go ahead. So you talk about 1973 and the HMO Act, and one thing to remember is that Richard Nixon may have been Republican, but he wasn't today's Republican. He was actually much more uh, socially progressive than mm-hmm. we tend to ascribe to the Republican Party today. Um, and he was certainly interested in market efficiency. He was Republican in the sense that he believed in market forces, and he believed in the power of business and corporate America to produce useful products and services. But he wasn't anti-government, and he certainly understood the notion of uh, regulation. Um, so right around the early 1970s, a number of people were thinking about health care, and they noticed something very, very odd. And this goes back to your first question about induced demand, which is that although doctors are pledged to very high standards of conduct and are highly, highly educated, their incentives are sort of screwy. Doctors, like everybody else, want to make money. There's no reason to believe they don't want to make money. In fact, there's every reason to believe that one of the big reasons why people become doctors is because they actually want to make a lot of money. It's one of the huge draws of the professions. It's a high-paying profession. And doctors make money by selling you services, just like any service profession. Um, they don't make money just purely on their wisdom or by allowing you to glean from their wisdom. They make money by selling you services. Whether the service is a diagnosis or a test or an intervention or a therapy or a surgical procedure or an endoscopic procedure, they sell you stuff. And the problem is, is that the more stuff they sell you, the more money they make. That just makes them human, by the way. I mean, we, we all like to make money. We all like to sell stuff. We like to sell our services. We like to sell our labor. And most of us are induced to sell as much as we can at the highest possible price. They just make us human beings. This is not to say that doctors are unethical. Doctors are highly, highly trained. They tend to be deeply embedded in science and scientific uh, approach to knowledge. Um, they, uh, they, they adhere to a strict code of conduct. Um, they often work miracles. They, they provide huge benefits to those of us uh, who see them. 
But it is to say that they may be selling us services and interventions which are of marginal good, right? Where in a, in a perfect world, they may say, you know, you don't really need this. You don't really need this test. You don't really need this procedure. But it's not going to hurt. And it might help. And you'll be happier because you like the idea that I'm doing something. And I'll be happier because I actually get to bill for this, right? Again, so it just, it just makes things, uh, it just makes them human. But when you think about it, the normal um, restraint on this kind of behavior is price, right? We, people are always trying to sell us goods and services all the time as customers, patients, and clients. And most of the time, we evaluate what's being sold, and we evaluate our own reservation price, and we say, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you're trying to sell me that Maserati, but I don't really feel like paying $120,000 for a car. But when you're not paying, when someone else is picking up the tab or when someone else is picking up a large part of the tab, then all of a sudden the basic restraint on overconsumption disappears, right? Someone's trying to sell you something. They say it won't hurt and it might help and the cost to you is nominal. Maybe you have a small copay, maybe you have a small deductible, but basically it's free. And all of a sudden you have an incentive to say, sure, why not? It might help. They like it, you like it, everyone likes it except the payer. So the incentives are not appropriately aligned for efficiency. So the flip side, the way around this is for the payer to get involved, that third-party payer, and to somehow negotiate a different deal to align the physician's incentives. So that's what HMOs were. That's actually what they still are. And in theory, they work very well, although there's all sorts of problems with the way they're set up. But in theory, the payer now says to the doctor, we're going to pay you a certain amount of money per patient per year or per patient per month. And the less you have to do for that patient, the more money you get to keep in your pocket, right? Every time you have to do something for that patient, every time you have to do a procedure or a test uh, or an intervention, that's money out of your pocket because we're not paying you more for that. You, you get a certain amount of money to just oversee this patient's health care for a year. And, uh, and the less you have to do, the healthier you can keep that patient while doing the least amount possible with the more money you get. That's called capitation. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, it turns the whole uh, equation on its head, and all of a sudden the, uh, the incentives are perfectly aligned. In fact, if anything, you've over-aligned the incentives. Now all of a sudden doctors have a disincentive to treat, right? If every time they have to poke you, it's money out of their pocket instead of your pocket, then all of a sudden they have an incentive to perhaps under-treat you. And it's one of the great complaints about HMOs is they perhaps under-treat you. So we've actually known about this for a long time. We had these industrial health uh, programs way back at the turn of the 20th century, back 1910, 1920. One of the most famous HMOs is the Kaiser system. The Kaiser system mm-hmm. was really put together by Henry Kaiser when he was building the Hoover Dam. So we've had this idea of an industrial health plan or a capitative health plan for a long time. But really in the 1960s and early 70s, we began to think about trying to expand on that model. And the Federal HMO Act in 1973 was an effort to enshrine that into law. It basically said that any large company that had the wherewithal to offer an HMO plan to its employees had to offer at least one is part of a menu. It's problematic because you really can't establish HMOs where you don't have a large network of doctors. You have to have a fair amount of competition. They're actually hard to set up. There's all sorts of problems with HMOs. But when they work, they actually do hold costs down um, with very little evidence to suggest that the health of the members decreases. We really don't see that. When you join an HMO, it may be frustrating because you can't go see any doctor you want. 
and you can't go see a specialist without a referral, and you kind of have to do what the doctors tell you to do. On the other hand, there's very little evidence to suggest that you are less healthy as a result of it, which all that all means is that most of us are not very good judges of our own utility in healthcare. We don't really get what we need. That's why we go see doctors. Okay, thank you. And in fact, um, uh, the demise, more or less, of the HMO concept, uh, you wrote, uh, they fail to grow rapidly despite their accomplishments, you state, uh, Americans continue to resist them when they could, and doctors generally avoided them. Um, right, and- so let me, let me actually talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, so so if, if HMOs work, if they save money, and if, and if there's every evidence they really do keep you pretty much as healthy as traditional indemnity medicine, then why do we have such a hard time? And there's two answers. One is that patients hate them, and another is that doctors hate them. And a third is that they're actually hard to set up and manage their complex organizations. So... Why do patients hate them? Patients, it's actually unclear why patients hate them. Um, patients feel constrained. Anyone who's ever been on a really traditional closed network HMO, where you're absolutely not allowed to go out of network, where if you go out of network, you'll be reimbursed to zero, mm-hmm. where you must go through a primary care practitioner, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a physician, to access any part. That is, you you always have to kind of come in through the gate. You can't go around it. People find it frustrating, and it very much goes against an American pattern of consumerism. You know, Americans are kind of the preeminent consumers. We just love to shop. Even when we're poor, we love to shop. Americans are just shopaholics. And I think it's one of the ways we express our individuality and our autonomy and a sense of self-control, that I have my money and I buy what I want. And when you're in an HMO, you can't. You, you don't get to just buy what you want. Uh, it's not your money, by the way. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. If it is your money, you could buy whatever you want. But most of us want to buy what we want in healthcare, even when it's not our money. So patients hate it. And what immediately happens is they start finding little loopholes in the HMOs. And in an effort to try to keep their customers happy, their, their clients happy, uh, insurers try to create sort of looser models of HMOs. We call them uh, either point-of-service plans or PPOs, that is, preferred uh, provider networks. Um, these are all ways of trying to maintain at least some of the advantages of HMOs without making it quite so closed. People like those much, much more. They love not having to go to the gatekeeper. They love having the option of going out of network and paying a little bit more. The problem is, as soon as you erode the orthodoxy of the HMO, the cost savings uh, model drops precipitously. So it's one of these things where when, when you really keep the HMO strictly, it works. But as soon as you begin to erode the orthodoxy, it really stops working in terms of constraining costs. And one of the things that we've seen with American healthcare consumers, that is to say patients, that is to say all of us, is that as soon as we have even a little bit of money, we buy our way out of HMOs. I've, I've watched this again and again and again. This is very typical if an employer offers you a, a venue of health plans. There's the HMO, there's the POS, there's the PPO, there's the Cadillac thing. And the HMO, of course, is always the cheapest. You know, it may be free for you and a couple of bucks for your family each month. Um, and so you think, well, free is attractive, whereas to get to the point of service, you have to pay $40 a month. And you'd be amazed how many people of modest income are willing to pay the $40 a month. People really hate the HMOs. Well, what about the doctors? Do, why do they hate the HMOs? Um, so not all doctors do hate HMOs. If you talk to some doctors who work in uh, in some of the more established HMOs, like the Puget Care, the Puget Sound Health System, or the Kaiser System, 
they like it. They like the fact they, they're sort of unsalaried medicine. It allows mm-hmm. them to practice medicine without really thinking about uh, income. Um, it allows them not to have to think administratively, but it diminishes their, their pay. It absolutely diminishes their pay. So one of the big reasons we all go to work in the morning is to make money, and certainly one of the big reasons doctors go to work in the morning is to make money. They work very hard, and they work very hard to get there. And they have really voted with their feet. Uh, for the most part, they're just unwilling to take that uh, that pay cap. There's a secondary reason why doctors don't like it, which is it constrains their own autonomy. Um, the doctors frequently feel second-guessed, and... Um, if we know anything about the kinds of people who go into medicine, they tend to be very independent thinkers. It's one of the reasons why they're drawn to the profession. They, it is sort of one of the last areas where you can really be an independent agent. And they really hate the idea of being part of a large organization or a large bureaucracy where they're constrained in their ability to use their own judgment insight. It, it, they, they hate it. I mean, doctors, for the most part, like practicing medicine. But one of the reasons they like practicing medicine is because it's their patient and their decision and their judgment. Mm-hmm. They really don't like it. So um, when HMOs are set up and when they're when they're maintained sort of by strict standards, they actually really do work. Um, the problem is that people get out of them as soon as they can. So it really, in the end, it's not really been a very effective way of getting costs down. Thank you. Uh, underlying this conversation, and and I'll just note it, but we'll not get into it. And that is the, this this whole economic aspect of moral hazard. Is, in, is underlying all this. But let's just stay with the HMO issue. Obviously, yeah. we see some version thereof in Medicare Advantage. Um, but later in the book, you discuss or briefly uh, touch upon what's happening in the Medicaid space. Right. And it's working. States have managed to make it work there, the HMO model. It's now Medicaid managed care. And about 70% of Medicaid bennies, who number about 70 million, are in some form of Medicaid HMO. So right. would you agree it's it's working more possibly? Absolutely. So actually, let me take both of this. So the Medicare, let's go back to Medicare for a mm-hmm. second. It's a great example of what I was just saying, is that people who can afford to get out do. The Congress created what it's been, it, there's various names for it, Medicare Part C right. or Medicare <laughs> Plus, Medicare Plus, plus right. or Medicare Plus Choice, which is, so right. Orwellian, because, of course, it's precisely the opposite of choice, right? Right, right? And they created, actually, a fairly substantial financial inducement to get the elderly into this. One of the biggest ones is that originally, before the Medicare Part B came in, is that the Medicare HMO plans actually covered prescription drugs. That was one of the huge inducements to get people in there. And even so, only about 12% of all eligible Medicare beneficiaries joined. I mean, 90% of, uh, of the elderly, many of whom are living on fixed incomes, uh, didn't want to. They were willing to really pay a substantial portion of their take-home income to get themselves out of managed care, mm-hmm. which just goes to show you how much people don't like it. E- even when, as I say, even when there's really very scant evidence that providing lower quality health care, but people just, they like the choice. They more than like the choice. They love the choice. But the Medicaid is a good example. Um, so we've really, over the last 20 years, moved the majority of our Medicaid patients, I think almost 80% now, into HMO plans, into fairly tight managed care plans. It's been very effective. First of all, it saved us money. Second of all, I actually think we've seen quality go up for Medicaid. Um, the nature of HMOs is that there's a lot of coordination between different providers and that you're always seeing a primary provider first. So it's actually better long-term prophylaxis. You're just seeing kind of more responsible, consistent, coordinated care. 
For most of us, that's not such a plus because most of us are able to coordinate our care on our own. We have a doctor we like. We can make our own appointments. We can follow up. We can read the reports. Uh, we have a lot of kind of high-level executive functioning and decision-making functioning. People who are in Medicaid are poorer. Their lives tend to be less stable. They, let, they tend to be more fragmented. And what we know about the Medicaid population is even when they can get care, that is, they have essentially a voucher to buy care, they're often uh, consuming care in an, in an ineffective or suboptimal way. They're winding up in the emergency room. They're winding up needing tertiary intervention when something really should have been caught much, much earlier. They're not following through on therapeutic regimens. Uh, physicians, internists who deal with Medicaid populations know that medication compliance is much, much lower with the Medicaid population. That is mm-hmm. to say, you prescribe medicine, do the patients actually take the medicine? And that number, by the way, for everyone is about only 75%. About 25% of people don't actually take the pills that you prescribe for them. But for Medicaid, it's actually much, much lower than that. Probably only about a third of Medicaid patients are really following through on the prescription. So in every way, one of the big problems with taking care of poor people is not just getting them to the office and not just paying for getting them to the office, but actually getting them to do what the doctors tell them to do. And Medicaid managed care has been more successful at it because Medicaid managed care is more successful at prophylaxis generally. Managed care is all about prophylaxis. It's all about uh, a heavier and more aggressive use of primary care and of prophylaxis and of coordination between different physicians uh, and different providers. So... Um, most of the data we have about the Medicaid population shows that they are probably getting higher quality care under a managed care system than work to the old uh, indemnity care system. So it really, really has worked. I was going to uh, follow or work, try to work in. You have a discussion, obviously, about uh, the Clinton effort in the in the mid '90s, so-called Hillary Care. Obviously, we know what happened to that. But let's yeah. uh, let me let me pass on that. We're still with uh, the title of this vo- of your volume, Unaffordable, so that brings me to the Affordable Care Act. Sure. Uh, I'm sure your title picked up on uh, that massive piece of legislation. On balance, uh, you argue that the law did little or at least uh, was, has been ineffective in addressing affordability. How do you see uh, the ACA... Uh, sure. I mean, this is a huge way. one, and I, I know we only have a few minutes. No, so well, let no, let's, let's, let's feel so, free to get into this. Okay, so let me start by saying I was a huge fan of the Affordable Care Act while it was being legislated when mm-hmm. it passed. I, I really sort of said with some hyperbole to my friends, we are finally part of the community of nations where we have guaranteed national health insurance. Um, that's not to say single payer, but mm-hmm. really virtually every other industrialized nation in the world uh, guaranteed health insurance to its citizens, whether it was through a socialized medical system, the way they do in the UK, whether it was through a simple payer system, the way they did in Canada or Australia, or whether it was through overlapping uh, regulated private systems the way it's done in Germany or France. Right. You know, there's lots of different ways to do this, right? And we had always been the outlier. We had 55 million Americans who did not have health insurance. And all of a sudden I said, we've done it. We've It's a little cockamamie. It's, it's not really ideal, it's a little messy, but we've done it. All of a sudden, every citizen or everyone legally residing in this country, uh, undocumented aliens notwithstanding, but all of a sudden, they are required to have health insurance, and we have uh, created a possibility for them to buy health insurance at reasonable rates through these uh, subsidies of the federal exchanges. So I said, again, it's not ideal, but I think we've made a huge step forward. 
I will tell you, I'm I'm quite disappointed, um, and I'll just tell you a little story. Uh, so I, I follow healthcare a lot. It's what I studied. You know, I really my life's work. And one of the odd things about the Affordable Care Act is it was passed into legislation in 2010, but the main part of it wasn't really imposed for another three years, right. uh, which was to say the health care exchanges. There was a very big lag time. And there was a lot of pieces to the Affordable Care Act, but the biggest single one was that we created these uh, state health exchanges where individuals could buy health insurance at subsidized rates. And the big thing, and this is really the big thing, is they could buy health insurance on a community-rated premium basis as opposed to an individual basis. That is, mm-hmm. the, the, the plans on the exchanges were required to offer everyone in the risk group roughly similarly priced health insurance, regardless of your background. Now, it's not entirely true. There could actually be as much as a threefold difference, but it couldn't be a tenfold difference, right? right? So right. It, was a big, it was a big improvement in my mind. Well, all, I, I'm following this, and like two years into this, two and a half years into this, I'm chatting with someone at Blue Cross Blue Shield, and she says to me, so we're, we finally managed to put the plans together. They're going to go on the market this spring, and we have the gold plan, the silver plan, the bronze plan. Uh, but they're going to be sort of high uh, deductibles. I said, what do you mean high? 500 bucks, 600 bucks? She said, oh, no, 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 no. $7,000. I said, well, wait a minute, you must be wrong. She said, oh, no, the bronze plans are often going to have a household deductible of $11,000. I said, what? <laughs> I said, that's not health insurance. But the people buying a bronze plan, for the most part, are very much middle-income people. We're talking about households with $50,000 of income, $60,000 of income. The idea that that family could shoulder an $11,000 deductible is absurd. That's not health insurance, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it, in fact, what is that? In other words, if, 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 you're, if you have a household making 60000 so after taxes you're down to 45000 the idea of taking an $11,000 hit, that's 25% of your after-tax hit. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. And I said, here's something really interesting. I hadn't heard that number. I had followed this legislation like a hawk, and I hadn't heard that number, which made me think that a lot of people hadn't heard that number. It made me think the numbers were buried, and that made me very skeptical about the good faith with which this legislation had been passed. And in fact, I kind of went back and did some lit searches after the fact. I said, were these numbers ever bandied about in press, either the scholarly press or the popular press? And the answer was no. These numbers just never came up. So either people really didn't know or they were buried or they were really deliberately buried. But when they came out, I said, this, this can't work. This is not a reasonable product and this is, and we're not going to feel like we have national health insurance. They said, no one is going to feel like they have national health insurance when they're facing an $11,000 deductible. Uh, even if we're subsidizing the premiums. Now, we, we papered it over a little bit. We created these sort of extra extra legislative subsidies. In other words, the, the premium subsidies are embedded in the legislation. But the subsidies to actually help you with the deductibles are really very discretionary. And in fact, President Trump uh, right. tried to cut them six months ago. I have to say, I was like, believe it or not, I was somewhat sympathetic to Trump. I was thinking, he's right. You know, it's not in the law. Uh, this was sort of a gift that the Obama Department of Health and Human Services was trying to do to, to make the, to make this bitter medicine go down a little bit easier, but it's really not in the law. These and are I, the, I the CSRs, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. 
So um, I, I, I'm skeptical. To me, this is not a, many of these exchange traded programs. Uh, these these, uh, these health insurance products sold in exchanges are really not, in any reasonable sense, comprehensive health insurance. The numbers are far beyond what a typical middle income household can handle. And not only that, but we're still averaging money. Um, we're, we're still seeing extraordinary levels of healthcare inflation, substantially above uh, the general rate of inflation. Um, so we didn't put in any structural, we didn't put any powerful structural limits on healthcare inflation. There was a little something called the iPad that was put in, so we tried to put in sort of little baby teeth. To, to, to begin to gnaw down a little on these inflationary efforts in the system, these inflationary pressures, but we really didn't do it. I will also tell you, just while we're on this conversation, that was sort of by design. When President Obama came in, he knew he wanted to address health care, and there were really two things he could address. He could either address access, that is bringing more people under the health insurance umbrella, mm-hmm. or he could address cost. But he just felt politically he could not do both, and he chose access. I mean, it was a very clear choice. He said... He said, we must have 100% coverage of the American people, and we really did not talk about how do we leverage down the cost of the whole system. So we didn't. And in fact, I'll tell you, it's even worse than that. In order to get the Affordable Care Act through, there had to be a lot of horse trading. Right? We had to bring a lot right. of interest groups on board, including the pharmaceutical manufacturers, including the American Hospital Association, including the American Medical Association. Right? A lot of powerful interest groups sort of had to buy in and they were largely bought off, right? We sort of bought them off one by one by giving them kind of exactly what they wanted. So no one took a haircut during those. In fact, if anything, people making more money than ever as a result of that because all of a sudden there are more people who have health insurance. So die. So hospitals have to provide less uncompensated care. And physicians have to see fewer uncompensated patients. And, uh, and uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers now have more insured Americans to which they can sell prescription pharmaceuticals. Well, we've seen inflation. Yes, and relative to the 09-10 passage debate, it was largely, you could say, per your point, Keynesian stimulus. Um, And you're right, there were deals made with pharma and others, although there were some efforts uh, to to rein in Medicare Advantage, benchmarking. uh, You know, they're experimenting still with accountable care organizations, et cetera, but obviously they haven't yet proven out. Sadly, uh, Jonathan, we're already at our our time limit. Um, we'll have to we'll have to talk further. I think. Okay, uh, I mean we could clearly go on for hours. Yes, right? <laughs> uh, we did just scratch the surface relative to the contents of your volume again on affordable American health care from Johnson to Trump. So I say thank you very much for your time, and let's continue this at some uh, future point. Great, David. Thank you. Really appreciate the time this morning. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.